Welcome to Rock's Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins. Um, my co-host today is Jasper Murison Bowie. Mark is sunning himself in his Tuscan retreat. So sadly, he misses <laughs> the rare treat that is this week's special guest, Alan McGee. Welcome, Alan. Hey, Barney. Very good of you to join us today for what is essentially a Creation Records special. Thank Though you. We will also be hearing clips from an audio interview with Blur's Alex James and saying goodbye to Trini Lopez and Wayne Fontana. Alan, let's start by asking what your pop baptism was. When did you sell your soul to rock and roll? <laughs> Probably 1971. And I bought Get It On. That was the first record I bought. Nice. Which, uh, yeah, it sounds amazing, but the next one I bought was Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I, I was buying, obviously, I mean, I was obviously buying whatever was number one. And Get It On was number one the week before, and then it was Chirpy yeah. Chirpy Cheap Cheap. So I was buying the number one records. I suppose when I was about 10 or 11, and I kind of was fascinated by Matt Boland and I would do the thing that I think all the 70s kids did, get the tennis racket out and, you know, play play, play it being, you know, a rock and roll star. You know what I mean? And that's probably at that point, I kind of knew that would be the ideal thing to do, something in music. Do you know what I mean? You know, I never thought that I would end up a manager. I never saw that one coming. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I never really liked managers in the very beginning. Do you know what I mean? But I suppose I kind of, found my little niche for putting records out and managing bands, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I had this sense that there was a little kind of coterie or gang of you guys up in Scotland who who essentially shared tastes, like Joe Foster obviously turned you on to important things. It's always interesting to me to, to read about this stuff and to think, well, it was exactly the same for me and people all over the country that we were sort of, you know, we were getting into the Stooges and the Velvets and loves yeah. forever changes and all this stuff. Can you describe how that little gang of people came together, Alan? We we, we essentially went to school with each other, Barney. Right. You know how the U two story is very. It's like the It's like you know, it was a guy gang of guys that went to school with each other. Well, the thing that nobody really knows about the creation story is very very similar. I mean, me and Primal Scream all went to school with each other. Yeah. I knew all of them bar Bobby by the time I was ten. And then uh, Bobby came in for Springburn, which was, we, we lived in, I lived in Govan Hill, and then I moved up to Mount Florida. And it was, it, they were fine, but just, they, they were, you know, it was okay, but Springburn was much rougher. So Bob came in for like Springburn, and that was the connection, really. I suppose it was just, you know, we all were grooving on music. I suppose the real instigators of it, though, was me and Gillespie. Yes. To be honest, you know what I mean? Like that was uh, that was two fanatics. Because yes. we would be in a Tuesday night at Air Pavilion watching Generation X in nineteen seventy seven. I mean it was like and we were like fifteen and fourteen, so it was kinda mad what we were up to. Yeah. And I in respect to both sets of parents, really, you know, although for different reasons. My parents <laughs> didn't really give a shit where I went to, do you know what I mean? It's just as long as I wasn't bringing the police to the door, which I never did. They didn't really care that way. Bob's dad was actually pretty liberal. And he's a good guy, actually, a big socialist uh, trade yes. unionist guy. And he was a good guy. And as it all went on, and I got I got kicked out on at 16 with my old man, and I ended up staying with Bob's dad and Bob for about a year, you know. But, you know, And then, then I got a little bed set at 17, you know. But, you know, I, that childhood was good, though, because I, I was... For different reasons, you know, like Bob's parents were like letting him have an experience. My parents were like, get out of the house. <laughs> but it didn't really matter because I was still having what I thought was a good time. And I look back on it and think that was incredible. Being able to go to air at 15 to see Generation X was great. You know what I mean? Yeah. And now I'm mates with these guys, you know, like Tony James and Billy Idol. And you get talking to them and, they, and you go, oh, we, were, we were in your dressing room. And they don't believe us. They think we're just making it up. We really were. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, one of the one of the pieces that we're featuring on the homepage is by Neil Taylor, who was the guy that in, introduced a lot of us oh, yeah. to obviously great Jesus book. in the marriage. Great, thing. great, great yeah. book. I mean, yeah. and these pieces really stand up well. I have to say, so this is great. But it was interesting to me to read this. I, I guess was the first interview with the married chain in NME, and Jim Reed talks about postcard, and he says that Glasgow sort of wanted just to kind of keep it at that level. 
and yeah. and just like endless kind of postcards and of course it didn't happen anyway and it's interesting to me that you broke away that that you obviously decided you had to go to london you went to london yeah, that's it. i don't know how quickly things started to happen for you i imagine initially it must have been difficult yeah it was uh... the living room i think the first gigs at the living room would have been around this time of the year like august 83 yeah, 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 yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, you were a great hustler. I don't know if you even remember this, but I actually was assigned to interview and write a piece on creation. I'm yeah, glad yeah. You're looking like you don't remember. I hope you don't. Because we actually got in a bit of an argument in Covent Garden. <laughs> you were traipsing around with the Jasmine Minks. And you had your, it was a bit like Kim Fowley, you know, with, with, with all these like, <laughs> acts. And, and, I, and I thought, oh, who is this? This is the new Malcolm McLaren giving it, giving it large talk. And we just got really pissed off at each other. I walked out and then Bruce Dessau ended up writing the piece that I no, should no, no, have no. written. But, uh, but, 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 I, but I, see, I, in a way, you know, I mean, that whole thing that I was into was just when you're young, you don't really believe you can be the story. You don't really believe you can actually be Alan McGee or, or Barney Hoskins or blah blah blah. So you think, you know, if I copy Malcolm McClung, I'll be <laughs> and you just look like a fucking dick. But it's some of that stuff was good because it was so mad. Like when I was managing the Mary Chain, it was like I really thought I was Malcolm. And it was some of the moves were quite mental. Do you know what I mean? It was like we had a riot, Barney. And rather than hide the band, I went and got the TV crew and filmed the riot. And that was the best thing that ever happened to their career. Because it went worldwide. It went viral when it went before before things went viral. That was on the news in Canada and America. And we ended up touring. Touring North America because basically I had cleverly went and went me being Malcolm went. Filmed the riot, and, and they did. Yeah, absolutely. In the Bruce Dessau piece, which was published in late 80... Uh, yeah, it must, you must have done this interview with Bruce in about October 84. And, I haven't seen him in years, man. I haven't yeah, seen him in years. He became like a comedy critic, didn't he? Oh, right, and, right. Um, but there's a great quote in this, and it just made me think of, like, obviously how creation was was so different what was going on. Everything was like bouncy synth pop and haircuts and yeah, everything. Yeah. But, but And creation was kind of, And you say, Jesus and Mary Chain are the shock troops in this war on pop. <laughs> yeah, love, you love, you got to love the rhetoric. They'll smash down doors, which more subtle bands like The Loft and Jasmine Minx will discreetly sneak under. Well, I guess that didn't happen, but the Jesus and Mary Chain was like an incredible event. And, and yeah. listen to like Upside Down again. It's like, oh my God, this is this is... This is a new kind of punk rock, isn't it? And yeah, it's just right. extraordinary sonically. So things yeah. really changed with the Mary Chain, didn't they? That was, yeah, that, that was like, I remember thinking, right, this guy actually does know what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the truth is, though, that Mary Chain record, they deny it. If you ever interview Jim and William, they'll 100% say I'm lying. But I was there. So this is actually what happened. They came down to play their first gig. They'd sent me a demo of Upside Down, right? It was like the Ramones, Barney. Have you ever heard the Upside Down demo? It no, kicking about have, the internet. No. The, the, it's the just real like thing the, is enough for me, I have to say. Yeah. It's, it's so, so, it's just, so it's just like the Ramones, the demo. They sent me that. And I thought it was pretty good, but I didn't think it was great because it's not. It's just a pretty good song, right? And they came down and they'd never played a gig in their lives, no matter what they tell anybody. They'd never played a show. Literally, not even under another name. They had been in their bedroom for five years. Yeah. And uh, they plugged in, and uh, Joe Foster was on the mixing desk, which actually meant nobody was on the mixing desk because he's <laughs> mad, right? Yeah. They plugged in, played too loud, and it fed back. Because the Mary Chain are actually deeply mental, they just carried on. So the whole sound check was that noise. And then nobody really, because we quite liked it, we never told them really to. We just, we just let it go because usually we would try and sort it out. 
because they were so crazy, we were like, let's fucking, let's we sound better when the feedback, let's just go. Yeah. That became their sound. And when we done Upside Down, we recorded it. Joe produced it. Joe, Joe did the first mix. And it was a bit tame. Because the Mary Chain actually deeply felt an affinity with the, the first recording, right? Which was the Ramones. Yeah, because Williams, basically Rose Ramones guy. That's where he was at that point, right? And we we went, no, it's no mental enough. It's no mental enough. And I went in with William. And William got all the sonics right. And I did the I did the feedback, right? And the feedback went between nine and a half and ten. <laughs> the whole song. Yeah. That was where they got their sound. We sent them back. And for about 10 days, the Mary Chain said, we don't like it. Yeah. And I, I and, and then it was like Douglas and Bobby liked it. But uh and Bobby wasn't even in the band at this point. I think he was just about to get involved with them, right? Uh, but I, Douglas was on board, Bobby was on board, I was on board. And I, and eventually I kind of had one call, I think it was with Jim, and I said, just trust me, Let, they'll go for this. And we put it out, it explodes, properly explodes, doesn't it? And, and if you had to ask them, that's, is it, did any of that happen? I'm pretty sure they'd say none of it happened. But that's how they got the sound. It was just... They, we knew a band that sounds like that is going to explode. And it's it, we've actually got it sounding the way it's going to explode. Just go with it. Yes. And eventually they went, okay. Well, thank God you did. I mean, it's a bit like, like Joy Division and Martin Hannett, isn't it? They didn't like Martin yeah. Hannett's sound. But without yeah. it, would we be talking about them today, you know? Yeah. I was just going to say it's interesting that generally in this in this interview with, with Bruce Dessau, where you talk about the music business being sick, and creation being the medicine. Listen, wait, I was full of shit. Don't worry about any of that stuff. <laughs> he he right. knows me. Barney <laughs> knows me, though. I mean, I, I, I'm like this now. And I kind of was like that then. It was just an act. I was just, I was just being pompous. And it sort of worked. It sort of worked. Do you know what I mean? That's what you have to be at 24, 25, yeah. isn't it? Really? Yeah, a little bit. Kicking little against bit, yeah. the pricks. Yeah. Right. You mentioned Bobby. And obviously, Primal Scream is already like... A, a reality at this point, even when he's standing up and drumming in Ray Bands with the Mary Chain. Yeah. If we just if we fast forward a little bit to the end of the eighties, when Creation has has already really made its mark, and Primal Scream, you know, evolves into something different from the kind of you know sort of British Paisley Underground type Birds influenced band that they were, and. Tell me about uh, tell me about that Screamadelica and you know what what Primal Scream became. Well, the first album was exactly like you say. It was like it was like the birds. It didn't click. They were pretty good at that, to be honest. With Jim Beatty playing guitar, and then they made a mad move and they decided to become the New York Dolls, right? And they were really righteous about that one, man. But that went on for about two fucking years, and the last year of it. Well, they were on tour right up before Loaded. They were on tour for about a year. And the, the audiences, Barney, were getting crazy, right? We'd started about 1,000 people in London and we were finishing up about 200 people in London at New Cross. Do you know what I mean? It was, we were on that trajectory. They were going down. Mm. In the middle of all that, in 88, 87, 88, I started going to Acid House Clubs. And Throb, 100% was not buying it. Bobby, was interested on a level. Ennis was interested on a level. Do you know what I mean? And uh, so I was going to these clubs for about four or five months and then I'd be phoning them up because we were all like, we'd all like had broken relationships with people. So we were kind of living out each other's pockets. And I'd phone them at four in the morning from Manchester, going, what a night. And, you know, and they, they were a bit, they were curious about it. And then Happy Mondays were playing at this, the Zap Club, I think it is, in Brighton. And I took Bobby and his girlfriend along and we went into the dressing room and bought a load of ease off of Sean, who was who was basically serving serving up. This is me and Sean go back to eighty seven, so it's inevitable that I was going to manage him, you know. Because I, I used to go up to hang out with the Mondays in Manchester if I was up in Manchester. I'd be hanging out with them for the weekend and I'd go in and see Sean and go, I'll oh, give us whatever. And he'd like we'd do a little thing. And then I gave no, actually, Sean gave Bobby one, put one in his mouth. And about 20 minutes later, Bobby went, it's no what? 
And we were like, we were thinking, you're off, you're not. And he went, no, you're not. So Sean went, boom, put another one in. And then that was it. <laughs> he was he was like dancing. He was like this mad kind of like uh, scarecrow fucking Ramones fan in black leather trousers and winkle pickers at a yes. fucking Mondays gig. Bummed Mondays and uh, was dancing. And that was sort of the beginning of Bob yeah. getting into it. And then yes. a year and a half later, Screamadelica happens. And, but when, you know, they weren't insincere, but they still getting it really early. It was like 88, they were getting into it. Do you know what I mean? And then 89, they were just out the whole time, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, Loaded came about February 1990. So they were like, they were big time into it, you know? They were, absolutely. I mean, sadly, we don't have time to talk about all the incredible acts that you signed in that period. You know, some of my very, very favourite records, obviously, Bandwagon-esque, I still absolutely adore. Rereading one of the pieces that we're going to feature sort of reminded me of the whole Alex Chilton thing, and you you say, I think you're telling Max Bell in Vox. So this is 10 years after you formed the label, and you're telling Max about nearly signing Alex Chilton. And I, I listened again to like Alcohol Holiday. What an incredible track! You know, the end of the eighties, I'd become good friends with Alex. I don't know why I ended up and never signed him, but this is how close I was with him, Barney. Alex used to phone me up at ten o'clock on a Tuesday morning in London in Hackney. I go, Al, can you move my gear from Minneapolis to Philadelphia? <laughs> and I'd do it. And he wasn't even signed to me. And I'd phone some courier up and go, go and pick Alex's gear up. It'd be 500 bucks, okay. And he'd do it. And, and, like, and that was how in, that's how intertwined I was with Alex Chilton. And right. I, he wasn't even on my bloody label. It was completely mad. <laughs> he just phoned me up and go, can you move my gear? I'm like, all right, I'll do it for you. Because I loved, I loved Big Star. I absolutely loved yeah. him. Yeah. What is lovely He's a good that. guy, Alex. A good guy. Strength, I mean, a, a, a perverse person in many ways. My yeah, God, yeah, yeah. He, he, and he, but yeah, so Bandwagon Ask, and then of course, you know, Loveless, the mighty Loveless, the extraordinary Loveless, the extraordinary Kevin Shields. The album that, that of course, you know, notoriously, and, and, I, and I'm sure this is, this is just wrong historical information, but, you know, it's always gone that the album that kind of, not broke creation, but almost bankrupted you. That well, led it's definitely bankrupted us, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a strange one. That I mean, I, I I love that record. Yeah, but it was it was really difficult time because you know I love Kevin for it. He was just so single mindedly going for the classic record. Was he, he just? I really think he was doing for a classic record. He was just going. That's where I'm going with it. You know, I mean, it was painful to be the underfunded little label he was signed to. Do you know what I mean? But we at the end of the day we get the glory. I mean, thirty years later, it's somebody that I respect like yourselves going. What a record. So it was worth it, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We put together a creation playlist on Spotify. Tragically, the only Bloody Valentine song on Spotify right now is Only Shallow. But at least yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Only Shallow, right? Because it, <laughs> it was on the amateur soundtrack, as, as, as I'm sure you recall. Yeah, he probably hates Spotify if it's not on there. He probably hates it, you know. I don't, I, I don't like Spotify on a level, I mean, I don't like it that it pays such shit money to yeah, people. Absolutely. It's just, it's absolutely, and they're going to, in years to come, Barney, they're going to look at this and go, we're going to look, at, you know the way that they say people are, you know, like Ellen DeGeneres, is that what her name is? Yeah, yes, yeah, and everybody's yes. going, and she's getting she's getting cancelled now because she's a shit boss, right? Yes. Well, <laughs> oh, oh, Spotify are eventually going to get the same cancelled. They're going to get cancelled eventually, because because basically they're treating the musicians really bad, man. You know. Yeah. No argument with that. Would yeah. you agree, Jas? But as as oh, yeah, a member definitely. of the, and I think one of the other problems with Spotify is that it doesn't matter who you listen to, your Spotify money just goes to the majors. Like it, even if you never listen to anything that's come out on Universal, they're still yeah. getting your money because that's how the system's set up. So it makes yeah. it impossible for small labels to actually yeah, get money out of it, which is shit. And hopefully they'll hopefully they'll change it. You know, yeah. given time. Maybe they'll see some sense and like, you know, so that you listen to, say, a Creation 23 
yeah. you know, single on Spotify, a percentage of your subscription will go there. So that would that would improve things a little bit. And I think there are movements towards that. But as it is now, it's fucking terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sure. In, in this, in the Max Bell interview, um, it's actually the perfect timing because you have just signed Oasis at this point. Yeah. This is this is April '94, and you 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 literally just seen them in your hometown at, at, at King Tut's Wawa Hut. It's really, it's it's lovely. I always love seeing quotes like this when no one at this point has any idea what is going to happen. This is going to be the biggest band in the country. And you're just sort of, you're so excited. We know the story that you went to see your band, 18 Wheeler, yeah, yeah. King Tut's Wawaha, and Oasis were third on the bill. It's just a great quote that I'll read. You say, by the time they did their version of I Am The Walrus, I decided to sign them. And you say to Max, the music is a cross between the Kinks, Stone Roses and The Who. And the cover of this tape, which is incredibly rare, is important because it's a Union Jack going down the toilet, which sums up (laughs) our country at the moment. I don't want to herald them too much, but they're already one of my favourite groups. Seeing them is what seeing the Stones must have been like in the early days. Brutal, exciting arrogant <laughs> love it love it so yeah and like i mean i don't really want to say about i mean you know j- j- I, I don't suppose even you anyone could have had any idea that you know i didn't know I, I just thought they were good yeah but i mean i mean like i mean do you remember that record i put out with trash monk at the end of the 90s do you yes. know that record yes yes i do that's yeah. a world-class record it sold thirty thousand around the world sure kevin Rowland, my beauty sold twenty thousand around the world We've put out loads of records that just went boom, yeah. under 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 the radar, no problem. Do you know what I mean? Trash yeah. Monk's worth a, a look at it. Oasis had zero idea it was going to blow up. No idea, Barney. I, I thought we're going to have a, be a big, big time indie band. And I thought, if we're lucky, we'll be... I didn't even think it was Primal Scream. Do you know what I mean? I just thought it was a good band. Yeah. I just... What did I think it was? It was like, I thought we might get a gold record. That was it. That's 100,000 copies. It sold 65 million. <laughs> Bloody hell. Yeah, completely. So, you know what I mean? That's, you know, there's yeah. a reason that, you know, I, I could sit back and just do my little indie records because it's like I had, I had Oasis, do you know what I mean? Mm. Thank God I did, do you know what I mean? Inevitably, I mean, it just so happened we had this audio interview with Alex James lying around, Alan, and yeah, I thought, oh, yeah. let's be cheeky. It's either going to piss Alan off or he'll... You know he's 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 mellower, and I'm mellower. I'm I'm sure you can you can stomach listening to a couple of quick clips of Alex James oh, yeah, yeah, talking. Yeah. We could What's we could just saying? talk Is about he... that whole insane kind of culture oh, yeah. war. Around... I quite like him to be honest. Yeah. I think he's a bit misunderstood. I think he likes music. Well, this is an interview. I mean, actually, he, he comes up as a pretty nice guy. You can take the piss yeah. out of his pickled cheese and stuff and all of that and, and, his, <laughs> and his lambs. But he, but he's quite a, a, a sweet-natured fellow. It's an interview done in yeah. 2007 when his autobiography, A Bit of a Blur, had just come out. Yeah. He was promoting it. And he's riding around in a taxi in London with You Magazine's Maureen Payton. And he's being very Ta-da. cheeky. We'll just hear the first of those Are clips. You? Are you? <laughs> So, I mean, you know, in, in many respects, I'm sure, you know, Blur's experience wasn't so different from Oasis' experience no. or your no, experience. No. It was suddenly this thing that was almost like out of control, incredibly exciting, yeah. but out of control. 
But yeah, I mean, tell, yeah. I never had any. I never had that. The real truth is, Barney. The only ones I really know in that band, I know Alex a little bit. I knew Alex at the time quite well. I always knew Damon, and I'm now pals with with Dave. I know him a little bit, and I was big mates with Andy Ross. I used to go to football with Andy Ross, and then uh, <laughs> I like go for dinner with him and all that stuff. Yeah. So creation and food were always cool with each other. Do you know what I mean? And I love Balfi. I mean, I mean Balfi's just a, a legend in his own time. So we, I was totally cool with that mob. Oasis got, because they can't help it, that's just the way they are. When they went into battle, they hated them. They truly hated them. So when I, we, we went to number one, we, some might say, and because I was mates with Damon, I said, oh, look, you can come to that, that, that number one party. I invited Damon. So Damon and Alex came, I think Graham came as well. They all came, and they came literally to say, well done, Oasis. And the Oasis started on them, and that was, well, Liam started on them, and that's where it all, that's kind of the beginning of it, do you know what I mean? But it worked out quite well for both, for, I mean, you know. Oh, yeah, it, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, <laughs> the whole media circus yeah, made I'm not it against massively... it. I'm not against it. I mean, it, it could be, I mean people bought in, yeah, and like, on the national news. I mean, the, the real beneficiaries of that, were Oasis because Blur, nobody nobody in our camp would would actually acknowledge it, but Blur were four times bigger than Oasis when we went to war with them, right? And and they won that that, that singles race, but their album was an okay album, and the Oasis album was like it, it Doddy's hits on it. So do you know what I mean? I mean, it just we we were the one that got we got the rocket launch off the back of that, you know. I mean, did you feel at the time that the media was partly trying to stir up a kind of cultural, this kind of absurd, like, north-south divide thing? I mean, it was a little bit. But that was Steve Sutherland, wasn't it? I mean, Steve Sutherland. <laughs> remember, yeah, remember he put on, like, I haven't seen Steve for years, but remember he had the two different NME covers and there was an Oasis one, if Oasis had one, and there was a... I mean, that was just... It was, it was kind of crap. But it, it, I suppose it added to the whole thing, you know? Reading the 80s pieces on, on creation, it, it did occur to me that in a way the seeds of Britpop were kind of planted there, weren't they? Because there was this very much this this sort of philosophy of like, fuck America, fuck R.E.M., you know, fuck. I mean, I know you like the Rain Parade, but you know, Neil Taylor's being very propagandist about this in his pieces. It's kind of like, you know, we need to champion these these British upstarts and 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 the, the music press is is kind of enthralled to all this just lame American shit. Oh yeah, yeah, back in the early eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The long, yeah, that was the just... long right or whatever. I mean, whatever bands you you you, you choose to yeah. mention, you know. Yeah, Neil played a big important role in in the launch of a lot of things. So because I mean, the Mary Chain were good enough. It was a brilliant band. Yeah, but it was a it was. A lot of it was the one thing that the only thing that wasn't by accident with the Mary Chain was William Reed's songwriting, who's a bona fide genius, basically. Do you know what I mean? But everything else about Mary Chain was it's a bit like how I say to you how they ended up getting that sound. It's kind of fluke. Yeah. And and like if Neil Taylor hadn't come along and went, This is the new Sex Pistols, what would have happened? I think it'd probably been the Bambi Slam. Do you know what I mean? It, it was just the right time. The right thing at the right time blew it up, man. You know what I mean? I think you're and right. So, I think luck yeah. always plays a huge Sometimes part. Sometimes you, yeah. you, you need disruptors, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Luck is always, I mean, just fortune and, and flukes and luck and just sudden left turns that nobody yeah. planned. I think you're absolutely right. Just go to the, I mean, to sort of conclude the creation part, actually, I'll tell you what, let's just hear the second of the Alex James clips, because you know, this is him obviously a few years later and, you know, he's living in the Cotswolds and having, you know, tea parties with David Cameron and all <laughs> of that. <laughs> and I mean, it, to his credit, he's very self-deprecating. He's not someone who ever took himself very seriously. Let's yeah. see what he has to say as a gentleman farmer, Jasper.
And it's very hard to let go of something that's been that good. But the, the point is, it's a, such a different thing being in a band when you're 23. Mm. And all you want to do is, mm. is get pissed and fuck mm. and, mm. and uh, play your guitar mm. really loud. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you're 38 and married with a family, and, and, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's still great, but it's, it's not the sort of vocational. Yeah. And it seemed ridiculous how, you know, that is not what I would want to do now is get on. I, I mean, I still want to do it, but I don't wake up thinking, you know, where mm. am I? I wish I was on mm. tour mm. like mm. I might have done mm. 15 years ago. I love the way he says, well, I still want to do it. <laughs> it's like, I, does he? I don't, does he? <laughs> <laughs> I know his wife obviously too. wasn't listening then. I suppose she might be listening now. But, I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and mean, you know what I think. I think it's very difficult for people like that because they must look at the, the big, big bands like you know, Aces or Metallica, and these bands and the Foo Fighters. That's a good point. That's a good one to talk about. It's like these bands just they're they're just never really off tour. You know, Oasis toured for twenty years. Do you know what I mean? They were always on tour. And Blur, really, if we're calling it calling it what it is, Damon's got Gorillas. Damon's got his solo stuff. He's got the Africa Express. And probably every five years, he does nine months with Blur. So if you are the other three, it's probably pretty frustrating. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Last of the three pieces is by your fellow Scotsman, Keith Cameron. And this is when, obviously, you've, you know, creation comes to, comes to it does come to a kind of crash. Keith Cameron is writing about the, the label's achievements and, you know, what it prompted in me was, I suppose, to ask this question as a hypothetical question. What if you hadn't sold 49% of the shares to Sony? Do you think, what 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 might have happened if you hadn't done the deal with Sony in 1992, Alan? I'd love to tell you the romantic one, but we'd have went bankrupt. Do you know what I mean? That's, they saved us. As much as that pains me to admit that, they fucking saved us. Do you know what I mean? But... It is doing the deal with the devil because you've let them in, and you know, like, and it's not really about the money part. Although towards the end, that became a problem, really, because you know you'd make we were making a lot of money at one point. You know, the last five years of the nineties, we were making lots. We were t- turning over forty million a year, yeah. which I don't know if that's in in now money, but it's always a lot in the nineties, man. Mm. So maybe you'd have eight or ten profit. Of the of the forty, and you had to give Sony half, so it'd, be, it'd become a problem, Barney. Yeah. <laughs> Being yeah. Scottish, I don't like it. But uh, no, it's not really the money. Where it's the problem is, they slide into your business, and it's a hidden hand that's controlling you really. And by the end of the nineties, they had moved in a lot of people, you know, under the guise of professionalism. Yeah, that they controlled. So the only two people left that were in really was me and Dick, and everybody yeah. else was ex Sony or ex major record companies. Yeah, and that's how they were controlling the label. Mm. You know what I mean? And when I put out the Kevin Rowland record, I was talking to Dick about this last month, and Kevin's putting that record out in Cherry yes. Red. Yes, I saw and that. I rem- and I remember going for a marketing meeting, and they, none of these people would admit what they said at that meeting, but they were just basically saying. It's disgust. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're like, this, what are you doing putting this record out? He's a cross-dresser, which he's not. Blah, blah, blah. And I was just, I went out and I just went, I, that was one of the, the things that went like that with me, Barney, and knocked it over was I was a bit like, it's fucked. We're basically, we're, 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 we're in business with a bunch of squares. Mm. We're fucked. Do you know what I mean? That Because cause I thought... It's Kevin Rowland. You should just let him make him do what he wants. I mean, I like I, I knew that, that when I saw the sleeve that we were only going to sell quarter million records or a platinum record off the back of it. Because I knew that Britain wasn't at that place you could accept somebody dressed like that. But you have to basically take a big call and go, it's Kevin Rowland. He's one of my heroes. It's why I run a label. Because when when we got that money, when it really started happening right for us. We had, I think I had eight million to sign whoever I wanted to sign, Barney, right? So who did I try for? I tried for Neil Young. And Neil Young was, was heavily signed up. 
uh, with Warners was never leaving. Then I tried for Paul Weller. I think it was five million to sign Weller. Right. And, and and he wasn't even out. He was like, it was there was two albums in front. I had a meeting with John Weller about it. And he said the ballpark figure if you want it. They wanted to come, to be honest, was five. And I thought it's too much. I love Paul. So I offered two and I didn't get it. And it went to Andy McDonald's new company. So the third one, because I could sign eight million, man. You can basically sign it just about anything in the 90s, like anybody, right? And then I just thought it was Kevin Rowland was the third person. So I was always signing my heroes by that point. You know what I mean? I was like, and John Lydon phoned up around that time. So I know John. And John said to me, we should work with each other, possibly, Mister McGee. What? And I was like, I couldn't sign. I couldn't sign John because I just thought if that goes wrong, God, I can't. You know, help me. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit like he'll kill me, but not even that. Just no. like I've got a great relationship with him. How you doing? And I don't to start putting his records out and get it wrong, possibly, because I knew that our our business by that point had been taken over by the squares. And I'm not being horrible at these people. They're nice people, but they they got exposed in the Kevin Rowland record for being, they should have been working, they should have been bottling beer or something. You know what I mean? They should be working, do you know what I mean? It was, it, it was the wrong business to be in because our business is freaks. Do you know what I mean? You know that. Alan, if I mention the name of the late David Kavanagh to you, do you yeah, yeah. bridle or do you what? I think you were pretty unhappy about that epic. No, I, the only reason I was unhappy, I don't care. It's a pretty good book. Yeah. But the only reason I, I, I would go, I don't even bridle. I just like, it's, it's a shame he died, right? Yeah. Basically, I totally took him into my confidence. Yeah. And, and I let him do that book. I didn't say I've got like editorial rights to it. I just write the story. And then about a month before it went, it went in, he said something to me. It was really snide. And I realised he's going to fucking, he's just trying to get his own thing off the ground. And who, Nick Hornby, that was who he really wanted to be. And he said to me, blah, blah, blah. You know, I said, oh, it's pretty funny. He went, yeah, it's a black comedy. And he was really snide the way he said it. And I went, I'll fuck you for that. So then I, I went out the next day, phoned Paolo Hewitt, went, do you want to do a book in creation? I went, yeah. And I went, you better get it out in two months. There's another book coming. And that's how I fucked him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I thought Kavanaugh was an extraordinary writer. No, he's I mean, brilliant. And- he's brilliant. But I totally fucked his book. Because it, cause he, was yeah. doing, he was trying to be snide to me. I just went, okay, fair enough. Sure. I come to Glasgow. I'm a much snidier bastard you'll ever be. Sure, I, sure, I, I, sure. Let, I let I let Paolo do that fucking book, which is okay. It's just Paolo. Yeah. Uh, but there'd be two books coming out about the one person within a month. We just killed the book, so that's how I done it. But having said that, I don't hate him. I'm just saying to you, he's a bit snide because right. because if he'd just done the book with an open open with an open mind and an open heart, I'd have been fine about it. You know, because mm. I don't think the book's that bad. But because he was, what he was trying to do was take the past at creation on my expense, however you like looking at it, right, and then set himself up to be the next Nick Hornby, which he, his next book was him and his story. Where did, he, where did he come from? Derry or something like that, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, Northern Ireland, no, for that, sure, yeah. And, and, and that's, so that's, that was his, what he was trying to do, and he didn't pull it off, do you know what I mean? He was a difficult fellow. I can imagine him saying, like, black comedy and perhaps not, meaning it to be taken like that. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I did read it. I thought it was pretty incredible. And there were blackly comic elements in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was pretty epic. I mean, it was incredible. The, the, joke, the joke is, his book could have been the film. I yeah. would have let it be the film. Right. But because he was so snide about it, I was like, okay. I'll fuck you for that. You know what sure, I mean? Sure, sure, sure. And it probably did disturb him that ended up, I had ended up writing my book. And it was, my book was more about my childhood, really, ultimately. And that's the film. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. We, we've got five minutes to hear about right, Creation yeah. 23, which is two years old. You've got a, a, a release coming out every remaining month. month of this year. So so tell us tell us about Creation 23. It's, it's kind of hobby label, and I'm just putting the records out. I'm doing it all off me and my iPhone. You know, 
I think it's kind of going quite well. Do you know what I mean? I think we've, we've put out something like 17 singles. I don't know. At a certain point, maybe we'll become an album label. But then I'll probably have to find a partner and do it with. Do you know what I mean? I had a guy, Barney, doing it. But he was, you know, we, we'd done the, we'd, we'd managed some bands like Mary Chain, Wilco, Johnson, Cast, Las Vegas. We'd done pretty well. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Mondays. Do you know what I mean? So we'd done really well with the management. And he was in as my partner in uh, Creation 23. And then uh, I think we were both about 10 grand down at Christmas and he pulled out because it was losing money. And you're a bit like, at one point with Creation, back in the 80s, going into the 90s, I was like 1.2 million in the hole of money that was never mine in the first place. Mm. So you've got to, you've got to, you can't do little labels based on you're trying to make money. You, it, money will come if you do good work. Do you know what I mean? Reading the press release that I got this week, it, it just took me back to the, the dawn of creation, literally. I mean, the names of the bands, the whole kind of attitude and aesthetic. It was kind of like, does it feel a bit like that? Obviously, it's, it's very different. And as you say, yeah, running it, off your iPhone, which you weren't it, doing yeah. in 83. It's quite punk. I mean, yeah. I've, 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 I've done away with the contract. That was Simon, the guy I was working with. Uh, and, like, you know, it's like just bands, over bands don't fuck you. Like companies, distribution companies, lawyers, they fuck you. Like, you know, like little bands don't fuck you, mate. Do you know what I mean? You know, so I'm not doing the I'm not I'm not I'm not doing the contract thing, you know, it's just a fifty fifty deal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting what you say about, you know, do good work and the money will come at some point, because that kind of happened as well with with pop tones, right? When when you decided sure. that creation wasn't and then pop tones was struggling for a while and then suddenly the hives were just yeah. Briefly, well, Pop, the biggest, Pop Tones biggest was great. Was crazy, guys. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story in a little bit. I think about trying to go, but um, I, it went on the AIM market. And I was told it was going to have a valuation. They saw it off the professional people that was hiring that three hundred pound an hour to tell me what the weather was like, right? And uh, <laughs> they said, "Oh, it'll probably it, it'll probably be like six and a half million valuation." I went, "Really? Oh, that's fucking great! Just go up, McGee, and have a meeting with these people up in Manchester." And they define for the AIM market what the valuation is. I don't know who these, what these people are called, but I went up and I sat in front of this board of people. And I came out, Barney, and I got a phone call later on. And they spoke to them and went, it's amazing. You must have, I don't know what you've told them. They love you. And I went, oh, what, what? you've got a valuation of something like nine and a half million. I was like, I haven't released a record. So now we're valued at nine and a half million. I haven't done anything. And then it went on AIM. And it, it, it jumped from 2 to 2.75 in the first day. So it went up again. I think within the first week, it was valued at 14 million or something. No, 17 million it was valued at. And, then, and I hadn't released a record. So of course Brilliant. it failed. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. it, didn't, it, it didn't fail, fail, because it's still about pop tones. But it didn't, you know, it, it, was, it was a bit like, where is it taking creation? 15 years to get to that stupid set. Within, I hadn't even released a record that it was worth 17 million. And I was like, this is fucking mad. And I don't think I'm really, because you've known me forever now, Barney, since the living room. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a businessy guy. I'm just, I can do it, but it's not really my forte. And I was like, it was too much, I think. I'd just come out of Oasis thing. And then I was like, I was suddenly the king of the aim market for about five minutes. And I was like, it's brilliant. You know, I don't, I don't, yeah, I, don't, I didn't really know what was going on. You know, it was worth it all for that Ken Stringfellow album. Which I love. <laughs> he's you know, he's a good guy. Yeah, he's lovely. a good guy. Big big yeah. star continuum there, but it was a yeah, really, yeah, yeah. I was really fond yeah. of that record. We put out some good records. Mm. I mean, the Hives record that you were talking about, Jasper, mm. great record. The story with that one was that I was in a hotel in Germany about two thousand, and it was Bravo. And uh, this band came on direct in black and white, kicking their height. Hate to say I told you so. I went, what is this? It's amazing, right? So I phoned up my office and they said, my little Pop Tones office, and they, and they went, oh, we know about them, blah, blah, blah. I'll find out. So they came back and they went, they're failing. They've just put the second album out and it sold 600 albums worldwide. And I was like, all right, okay. I went, phone the record company up and let me license it. 
for the next five years, the first and second album, and send me the records. I listened to them and get home. And I picked all the best songs, gave Burning Heart, the record company, two and a half grand for five years ownership of the, of the masters, and then put them out in America and, and Britain, sold a couple of million records. And that was the hives. That's how we done it. And the hives sort of took the whole story back to the full circle, didn't it, in a way? that Just that, like... A obsession with like garage like well you yeah. know why I signed them they remind you see when it comes in and hate to say I've told you so and it's the overdriven guitar and I went oh that's like the Mary chain so that's why I signed it yeah. but when I put the records together Barney I put together like it was all the, the best ones off the first album the best ones off the second album and it was just like because it was just a great record that, after that because it was like and then and then also Remember, I was like, I cut the price of CDs. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think it was. You think you could buy it for what a fiver or something like that? It was the retail price was seven ninety nine, but we were selling so many of them that the people were ordering like a hundred thousand. HMB were like, give us another hundred thousand. So they were in the shops about a fiver, you know. Yeah. Alan, we better let you go. I yeah, see man. I've, lost, I mean, I've, yeah. I've got a 1348 and then I'm going to Wales, so I can't even. But listen, guys, it, uh, let me know. Thank All you right. so much. I'm lovely to see All you. Right. You were brilliant. Right. Lovely. Brilliant, lovely. Cheers for coming Take on. care. Right. Bye-bye, bye, mate. Bye. bye. Okay, so thanks to our guest, Alan McGee, who has had Indeed. to leave to catch a train to Wales. <laughs> but wasn't he great? Uh, it was such a joy speaking with him. We are now going to just turn our attention to everything else that's new on the home page, including highlights of pieces going to the library this week, which of course Mark would normally be doing. But just to mention en passant, the losses of Trini Lopez and Wayne Fontana. I think either of us are great experts on this, but we're running three pieces in the Don't Fear the Reaper section this week. The first is about Wayne Fontana, whose group, the Mindbenders, were one of those Mancunian pop groups from the mid-60s who hit big in America, and they had a big mm. hit called The Game of Love. Is that the one that was on the Good Morning Vietnam soundtrack? It might have been. I couldn't. I don't remember. Yeah, it is. I actually, I love Game of Love. Actually, great record. Is that is that on the, that soundtrack then? I'm pretty it is sure quite it good. Is. Yeah. I, I and it was also sampled geniusly by Eminem on the Marshall Mathers LP two. Yeah, for a, oh, for a collaboration so with Kendrick, where they sampled Game of Love and kind of totally repurposed it, and it's great. I didn't even know that. So that's really. The piece we're running is from Record Mirror. Peter Jones essentially just previews this tour by Herman's Hermits and Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders, which ends up like traipsing through the American South. We have another piece by June Harris that sort of tracks the tour. But it's, it's essentially it's a kind of piece about the second British invasion. I mean, while it was never like the Beatles and the Stones, Herman's Hermits were absolutely massive in America, and Wayne Fontana briefly wasn't far behind. And he had a somewhat sort of checkered career. He had some issues with mental health, and he died this week. So we're saying goodbye to Wayne Fontana. We are also saying goodbye to Trini Lopez, who was, as his name might suggest, a, a, a kind of Mexican-American who was actually born in um, Dallas, I believe, born in 1937. So, you know, he had a long innings. And he became a kind of big star, particularly with his version of Pete Seeger's song, If I Had a Hammer, which was a folk protest song. We were talking about Seeger the other day. Yeah. It's kind of like a sort of, it's a sort of pseudo live version. It was a, it was a number one all over the world. I think it got to number three in the States. He had other huge hits with like Lemon Tree and stuff. And also, I mean, there's an interesting kind of tangential connection with Oasis here because uh, he had this Gibson, the semi-acoustic Gibson 335, the cherry red, 
guitar made specially for him by Gibson. And that was, you know, as many will know, it was the guitar that became so associated with, with Noel Gallagher. And yeah, I mean, a lot of hits. It's not, it's not like I've been a household name for a while, but he was a big star in, in particularly in the 60s. And became a sort of Vegasy type act in, in the 70s and 80s. We've also lost, there's an LA connection with the Seeds, who were a huge like LA garage psych band, probably a band that Alan McGee was listening to in East Kilbride <laughs> in the 70s. Mm. And their guitarist, Jan Savage, who patented this kind of fuzz guitar sound on tracks like Pushing Too Hard. They were great. I love the Seeds, I must say. They were a sort of pop psych band. Are they the, the sort of like other side of the coin from the bad seeds then? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they were bad seeds in their own way. They were pretty kind of rebellious, Jasper. They were... Uh, Sky Saxon was was this sort of proto-punky singer who took a lot of acid and really, really lost the plot. I mean, like mm. Rocky Erickson did, like a lot of people in that era mm. did. Peter Green, we were talking about the other yeah, day. Yeah, we were talking about this the other week. Yeah, and Sky really went off the deep end and sort of, you know, thought he was Jesus Christ and all of that. I don't know about Jan Savage's acid intake, but they were, they were like, I mean, they were part of a sort of scene in a sense that came out of Southern California. You think of bands like the Standells, although they weren't originally from California. And then Question Mark and the Mysterians in up in Detroit, the Shadows of Night, and the seeds were part of that. And I mean, they did make some, I mean, pushing too hard. It's like barely even like two and a half minutes long. I think it's one of the great sort of pop psych classics from the 60s. So nice. We're saying goodbye to, to those three, you know, 60s stars. You're pushing too hard. We're now going to talk, we're going to do what Mark would normally be doing. Yeah, in Mark's absence. Not having a huge amount of time, we will just skirt through some of the highlights, which pieces, in fact, that he, that he added, he he selected and added. So I'll, I'll cover that. And then, Jasper, you tell us about some of the pieces that you've added this week. So Sounds just good. there's a piece about death discs from Record Mirror, David Griffiths in 1965. So he's writing about... Songs like The Shangri-Las, Leader of the Pack, Twinkle's song, Terry. We we talked about Twinkle long ago with Dawn James, you may recall, Jasper. Yeah, I, I do remember, yeah. yeah. So death so this is broadly like songs songs about death. Is that songs the, about sort of tragic, premature death, mm. you know, a girl's boyfriend dying in a motorcycle crash and so forth. There was, there was a sort of vogue for... For, for that for them at that time. There's a great piece by the great Lillian Roxon, who Mark's talked about quite yeah. a few times on recent podcasts. This is a piece from 66 about Nashville as Music City USA. You know, and, and Nashville not just as a place where country music is made, but where the best session men in America are, and everybody wants a sprinkling of that Nashville magic. Mm. So, so everybody goes to Nashville. And one, one forgets this. You think of it as just like the crucible of country music. But it's a piece about why like Perry Como wants to make an album in, in Nashville. Yeah. There's a really funny piece by Ed Jones, who recently came on board, who was a Scottish writer, Connection that Town, but Edinburgh more than Glasgow. And it's just a piece about Wizard, Roy Wood's Wizard, in Edinburgh, it's kind of like a review of a gig there, but also like he's hanging out with them backstage and it's just very funny and kind of gossipy. We have two new great like veteran American rock critics come on board this week. Both did a lot of stuff for kind of like Fusion and Phonograph Record. Um, one of them is Gary Kenson and the other is Dan Nuga. And so we've got the first pieces by them. One is an early Patsy Smith piece Great. by Gary Canton from, I guess, just not long after Horses came out, late 75. Dan Nuger, fast, I mean, he, he started publishing interviews that he did 
revisiting them for record collectors. So there's a fantastic interview he did, I believe in 85, with um, the producer Jerry Ragavoy, which was published in 2017. But it's, I mean, if you're a fan of that kind of Burt Burns, Jerry Ragavoy sound, it's well worth reading. Probably the main piece that Mark would have focused on, and he took some quotes from, is that, you know, in, in the current climate, it's a really, really interesting piece about MTV and why, so it's from mm. 83, why MTV are not featuring any black videos. And you've got people like Rick James saying it's, you know, it's outrageous. To have a show called Music Television, this is Rick speaking to Michael Goldberg, in the San Francisco Examiner, to have a show called Music Television and to ignore the black groups that's ignored since its birth is a total drag. It's like taking black people back 400 years. Can't argue with that, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember watching MTV when it first debuted, actually living in LA at the time and just thinking, yeah, my God, this is sort of vanilla. Every, every, I mean, it was, it was, it was only Michael Jackson's Billy Jean. Yeah, I was going to say, did it take Michael Jackson? It took the Billy Jean. I think yeah. it took the Billy Jean video. They just couldn't argue with that. So to hit, to read the president, the vice the vice president of MTV, Les Garland, saying at this time to Goldberg, "This is a rock and roll channel. We don't play rhythm and blues music. It's not a question of the color of the skin or the performers. That has nothing to do with it. No, I'm sure it doesn't, Les. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's that's very. I mean, I, I get, and I, it also speaks to the sort of racist history of rock and roll as a term in the states yeah. which which is it's interesting to read that absolutely yeah no it's a, it's a very thorough piece of journalism by goldberg as you would you would expect there's a there's a, an interview with Joni mitchell who taken mm-hmm. the poll quote on the home page from that it's 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 classic Joni. I, this is 1991, I've pretty much been stricken from the history of rock and roll in America. <laughs> for like, it feels like Rick James. They think I'm a traitor. It's as if I was a Baptist and now I'm a Catholic. <laughs> Great quote. Yeah. Joni was, was always complaining about the way she was treated. I mean, you know, I sort of understood in many ways that kind of like her view was that if I'd been male, I would be as celebrated as Bob Dylan. I think that's probably true. On the other hand, it's not as if Joni isn't hailed as kind of the most brilliant woman in the history of American pop music by most people. Yeah, I mean, I think now certainly her reputation is yeah. very, you know, Unassailable. unimpeachable, I think. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But she did always have a little bit of a chip on the shoulder. And so... I think that's probably it. Uh, actually, I do want to just mention a great piece about the Cleveland scene by Kieran Tyler. It's a retrospective piece, but it's a really important piece from 2001 where he looks at, you know, he basically says the received history of punk is that it, you know, it, it came out of, it came out of Iggy, it came out of the Velvets, it came out of New York and then, you know, London and, and all of that. And Cleveland being, sort of nowheresville in the context of pop culture really gets overlooked so he explores three bands that were really important in the kind of proto-punk era the electric eels the styrenes and the mirrors he just talks to members of those groups and really puts them in context and they were really really important so perubu and Mm. and other bands came out of that scene and it, it it is a sort of area of punk history that just has always gotten overlooked even though john savage has always given those bands their props you know but it's a really it's a really good interesting to have them great so tell us jasper about what sort of what took your fancy this week well i'll just mention a couple of things briefly the first of which is a review of the aforementioned hives that's one of the reasons i put them to alan when when he was with us earlier where he actually gets a mention in the piece. David Sinclair goes to see the Hives at the Astoria. Yes. And this is when they're just sort of starting their part of the Scandinavian rock and roll invasion. And Alan gets a mention. McGee was larging it up in the VIP area of the Astoria. Where are Wearing his, wearing <laughs> yeah. his told-you-so expression as the band marched out on the stage below. And to give him his due, the Hives turned out to be one discovery that is well worth crowing about. So that, that's... I oh, lovely. thought it would be funny. Pity, that Pity he wasn't here for that. that. Yeah, well, well right, exactly. hopefully you'll but, hear it when we've... When we've so we've talked about the Hives a bit already. So I'll move on to the next... Actually, next... The year after. So this, that was 2002. And this is an interview, a long interview in The Wire 
with Richard D. James, otherwise known as Aphex Twin, who we've talked about before and who I think both of us are pretty pretty keen on as a musician and also just as a very interesting character. David Stubbs has a chat with him in The Wire and he just comes out with some great stuff. To be honest, I'd be quite happy never to hear anything new again, he declares. <laughs> you know, given that he is one, was absolutely and still is to an extent one of the very forefront kind of innovators in electronic music the, the idea of him not wanting to hear anything new but it actually turns into a really interesting point and he's very thoughtful and, and, and interesting about it he's, there's an overemphasis on the new he mourns especially on the part of the media who need this continuing diet of new things to write about but if you're really serious about listening to music there's so much great stuff that's already out there you're not bothered about scenes it's bad enough when you're running a label and you run into those moments where you make decisions you shouldn't be making in order to pay the staff and keep them in work with the magazine, this need to have new things all the time is just a fiction. To my mind, it's completely wrong. It's not reflection reality, but a need to fill space, which I think is really, really interesting and kind of a, you know, a salvo towards the music press and maybe the music industry in general of this kind of drive to it. And I think that's only become exacerbated by the internet where the news cycle has accelerated so much that there's always got to be something. But as you say, ironic coming from someone who was so up at the cutting edge, such an extraordinary kind of innovator. But I guess he, he you know, he, he gets to say that if he wants, it's not like Phil Collins saying it. No, no. (laughs) David Stubbs kind of makes a point. Richard D. James, perhaps the most serious and not serious person I've ever met. So I think he's always kind of playing with, playing with people a little bit in the press. He also says it's the real normal people who are the real fucking weirdos or people considered normal, which is something that, you know, I think speaks to his, his attitude of like, well, what, what the fuck is normal anyway? Yeah. I, I enjoy that. Yes. So that's, that's just a great piece if you're a fan or just, just for general thoughts from someone who, as you were saying, was and is at the, at the forefront cutting edge. And it's also, unfortunately, what, it's always, always funny thing. There's a, looking at it in the original publication, there's a very bizarre photo shoot with him with a stocking over his head they've sort of done a bunch of shots it's very funny one of those times when you lament not getting to put pictures on there was always something slightly kind of malevolent and diabolical about richard james wasn't that i mean he yes. really kind of flirted yes. with this, this this slightly macabre and devilish sort of alter ego definitely definitely they get into talking about about nietzsche and about stockhausen and it's it's all sort of these this this big sort of philosophical picture of great stuff it's it's great it's great and then lastly i'll just mention a live review of beyonce just to finish up with some good pop Queen Bay ruled the Stadium of Light in Sunderland, switching from glamours and goddess to line dancing Texan rodeo star. <laughs> it's just, you know, Beyonce, certainly one of the biggest pop acts and just always someone that's put on a really big show as well. You know, just fireworks and everything and costume changes abound and stuff. And Stephen Dalton goes to see it for the Times in 2016. And it's just, you know kind of gets across just what an incredible range Beyonce actually has when you think about the massive pop songs and then Lemonade has just come out at this point as well. Real depth to someone who is often dismissed as sort of just a pop star, but I think actually has a really good collection of different sounds and styles. I agree. And, you know, this is, this is we are speaking the day after Camilla Harris um, was, was picked by Biden. Mm as his running partner. And it makes me think that, you know, Beyonce potentially has a major role to play in the coming months and years yeah. in, in, in terms of American politics. I'm not suggesting she goes into politics, but she could do her bit to defeat the forces of darkness. Yeah, I mean, she has such a massive platform now. Yeah. Like, I would, it would be great to see her doing a little bit more on that front. That's the sort of one thing. So hopefully, you know, and it's, a, as you mentioned, this sort of historic bit of news yesterday yeah. about Biden's running mate, Kamala Harris. We can only cross our fingers that they managed to oust the incumbent. It's <laughs> <laughs> a polite term for the president. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, let's not go into that. Let's not do this, that. Uh... No, absolutely. Countdown to Armageddon, really, isn't it? Potentially. Um, but listen, thanks for joining us for uh, yes, this episode. 
Thanks, Jasper, for co-hosting. Thanks in his absence to the legendary Alan McGee for being our guest Absolutely. today. He was, great. He, he, great. was he is terrific. And we're going to go out with the third and final clip from the Alex James audio in which he talks about being or not being the drunkest band in British pop music. So be sure to join us in a couple of weeks. I will be away. It'll be Mark and Jasper. All things being equal, hosting another music biz legend, Vicky Wickham, who's a great pop writer in the 60s. And she managed Dusty Springfield and she managed LaBelle and she moved to New York and she's just terrific. That should be yeah. that should be great. Very much looking forward so to that. So Jasper and I are saying goodbye. Indeed we are. And here's Alex James. Goodbye. Take care. Bye-bye. You said you were the second, or the publicity blurb said you were the second drunkest band in the drunkest band in the world. Who was the most drunk? Well, I think that would be indiscreet to suggest. Oh, go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's always important. It, does, it didn't really matter as long as there was somebody drunker than me. <laughs> you know, that's when you're, when you're the drunkest one, then, uh, then you've got problems, haven't you? I guess you so, know, yeah. As long as you're not the drunkest one. Because you were never one, too drunk, obviously, so not, badly. To, not to remember what was going on. Uh, yeah, I'm... When the absinthe arrived, then there was some sort of lost, I suppose, a bit. But no, I don't think you... You know, it all does come flooding back as well when you start trying to recall it. So it's mm. like trying to remember dreams, you know, you get a little corner of it and mm. suddenly the whole thing's there. That was Alex James in conversation with Maureen Payton in 2007, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Alan McGee. Visit the Creation 23 website at creation23.co.uk. The host was Barney Hoskins, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Yeah.